Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 626. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. No one. <laughs> Word of a lie. I got up early to record this. I think this is possibly the earliest I've getting up to kind of record the Starship Sova. Six thirty in the morning. And it's purely because of the author. Yes, man. We have Robert Jesenek on again. Now if you if you can remember and think yourself back to when we played or if you've listened to any of Robert's stories before, we played two with a man. And it was the first one with that kind of come across. It was Jeremy, who kind of plucked it from the from the the, the other world there, and the the title in a green dress surrounded by explode, surrounded by exploding clowns that was in number five hundred and six, and then we did five hundred and two five hundred and twenty nine. We did a little song, a little dance, a little apocalypse down your pants, and oh man, Robert's writing is just fantastic. So I'm so pleased we've got him on again. That is just fantastic. So I'll tell you who is coming in today's show. Like I say, the main author is Robert Jesenek with the story An Infinite Number of Idiots. <laughs> this story first appeared in Galaxy's Edge. Then we and it's narrated by Rish Outfield as well, which just is gonna make this story so sweet. Then it's the end of the month. So we have Mr. JJ Campanella to just round things off. How about that? I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we're in for a, a fine old treat here. Robert Jesenek, an infinite number of idiots. <laughs> what a title. Robert Jesenek is a USA Today best-selling, envelope-pushing author whose fiction and comics have been published around the world. His stories have appeared in past episodes of Starship Sova, as well as Galaxy Edge, Fiction River, Pulp House, Escape Pod, and many other publications. He has written Doctor Who and Star Trek fiction and comics for DC Ahoy! And others, his young adult strip stream novel, My Favourite Band Does Not Exist, won the Forward National Literary Award and was named one of the booklist top ten first novels for youth. He also won an International Book Award, a Scribe Award for Best Original Novel and a Grand Prize in the pocketbook Strange Worlds, Strange New Worlds contest. And you can visit that. There's a little link there to Robert's site. Now, like I say, this story is narrated by Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, voice actor and audiobook narrator. He can be heard co-hosting the Dune Steve Audio Fiction magazine. And that gets my goat podcast where he and Big Al Yankovic, Al Yankovic, 
entertaining waste as much of their time. He also features his own stories on the Rich Outcast podcast. He once got a job because of his Sean Connery impersonation, but has lost lost two due to his Samuel L. Jackson impression. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... An Infinite Number of Idiots by Robert Jeshanek Narrated by Rish Outfield In every community on our world, which we call THE World, there's a statue of an alien idiot, which we call THE Idiot. And once a day, all the people in the world take turns pissing on these statues. We call this praying, as in praying that the idiot and his moron buddies never come back to the world, at least as long as we, the people, still live here. That's the kind of impression that the idiot, otherwise known as Captain Crap, and the crew of the fart-ship excrement made when they dropped by on their illustrious visit a while back. In case you're wondering, yes, the names of the idiot, his morons, and their ship have been changed to disrespect the indecent. But the rest of the story is true, or my name isn't Foka Ziza. And no, I don't normally talk like this, in words you'd understand, or expressions for which I have no frame of reference. But I thought I'd switch on the voice box translator left behind by crap, so I can be sure I'm getting through to you. Because I think it's very important that you know what happened with the excrement, that you know the whole story. Otherwise, it might not make a lot of sense that I'm carving you up like a piece of meat right now. How smoogy is too smoogy? That's a tough one to answer, since there's no good word for smoogy in your language. But that day, it was just smoogy enough in my part of the world. The skeletal towers were blistering hot under the blazing white suns, the air swirling with crackling driftweeds and dust demons. The parched ground was cracked, and scattered with jagged bone shards and mummifying corpse shreds that gave off a sweet, musty smell. The dry air echoed with the shrieks of the dying in the death pits, crying first for mercy and then for release. Does all this seem perfect and beautiful to you? It did to me that day, as I rolled along on my way to the nearest pit. It was just about as smoogy as you can get, a true paradise. If only the air in front of me hadn't started to sparkle just then. It was enough to stop my central mass, and the spherical arrangement of thirty multi-articulated arm legs radiating around it from spinning. I crashed to a stop in a jumble of bony limbs, barely avoiding the four figures that solidified amid the jumping sparks. My first thought when I got a good look at them was— Only two arms and two legs apiece? But the skins were a shocker, too. Pink on three of them, and a kind of pale pinkish-green on the other. I was so used to the people's bright white skins 
with the black blots constantly shifting under the surface in response to our emotional state, that these strange solid colors seemed unnatural. Then there was the clothing, which at first I thought was part of the visitor's skins. One wore a red top, two wore pale blue, and the one in front wore gold. All of them wore the same color bottoms, plain black. On a world where no one wore clothes of any kind, it made for a very alien-looking group. When the gold-topped one in the middle started talking, that impression was even stronger. The droning sounds he made with his single-channel voice, why not triple-channel like the voices of the people, were like nothing I'd heard before, and they made no sense. At least until he held up an oblong black device hanging from a slender black strap around his neck, identical to the one I'm wearing now, see? The device had a silver mesh grate on its face and emitted familiar sounds when he switched it on. Greetings. Somehow I was able to understand what he was telling me, as if he were speaking my language. We come in peace. As I untangled myself and restored my standard spherical configuration, other people gathered to take in this bizarre scene. One of the first to arrive was my mate, Vera Vo, who rolled up and parked at my side. Ugly things. The words came softly from her central mass, suspended within her lattice of arm legs. Bad feeling. I give them a chance, I told her or words to that effect, even as Goldtop droned on. By then, he'd told us his name and the name of his ship, which weren't Captain Crap and Excrement at all, but let's keep it simple and go with those. They seem more fitting. He said he was on a mission of exploration and wanted only to have a look around. Who could argue with that? We, the people, that's who. We should have argued with that right from the start. It would have saved us a lot of trouble if we'd thrown those bums off the world right then and there, instead of trying to be nice and showing them hospitality. We wouldn't have had to listen to more of their bullshit or put up with their meddling, and we wouldn't have missed out on so many righteous slayings in the death pits, either. We wouldn't have offended our almighty gods by depriving them of numerous sacrifices, we wouldn't have to make up for lost time now, offering up a steady stream of people like you. Yes, you. Sacrificing you to the gods is the whole point of the carving and the altar and the screams, after all. A lot of things would have gone differently if I'd stood up to crap that day. But no. Instead of driving off the newcomers, I introduced myself and Vera, and agreed to act as their guide which makes me think, looking back, that Captain Crap wasn't the only idiot in this story. Sightseeing on the world can be a wonderful experience. We've got the bone towers, of course, and the quicksilver fountains, the fuzz canoes and pop-up jungles, the dung mountains and the footprints of enormity. In the interest of goodwill, we showed Captain Crap and his excrement bunch around these and more, telling them all the stories of how these landmarks and monuments came to be. 
when we could get a word in edgewise with motor-mouth crap always blabbing. But all they cared about were the shrieks from the death pits. Can you imagine? What's with all the screaming, Foca? Where's that screaming coming from, Foca? It sounds like somebody's screaming for help out there, Foca. And I just wanted to say, where are your manners? You're getting the grand tour. Why can't you shut up and enjoy it? But I didn't say that. And neither did any of the other people trailing along after us. Vera did the next best thing, though. Slipping away at the coughing cliffs of hacknanimity, she rolled off fast to the death pits and got the clerics there to wrap up the sacrifices for the rest of the day. No more shrieking. Problem solved. Or so we thought. And now you know why we call these the Steps of Indignation. As I concluded another tale of one of our landmarks, I saw Vera roll up and give me a signal that all was well. Not for the first time, I thought about how lucky I was to have her as a mate. You truly have a magnificent world here. Crap looked around and nodded with a twinkle in his eye. And a quiet one as well. Now, at least. He was on to us and letting us know it. But I didn't care, as long as he and his bunch stopped nagging about the screams. I'm glad you like it, Captain. Write this way, and I'll lead you to the feast being held in your honor. Already? said the blue-topped male, introduced by Crap as Dr. Meh. You folks sure know how to throw a party together fast. Your timing is good, I told him. This is our holiday season. At that instant, one last errant shriek escaped the death pits. Some holiday, said Meh. There's just one thing. Captain Crap turned to his colleague with the pinkish-green skin and the pale blue top. Mr. Suck here noticed some anomalous readings from... That way, wasn't it? Crap pointed in the direction of the death pits. Correct. Mr. Suck had pointy ears, which suited him because he came across as such a humorless prick. Like Crap and the others, he spoke with the aid of a voice-box device hanging from a strap around his neck. The readings indicated violent activity or bloodletting, which has since abated. He stared at the screen of a black-shelled device in his hand, then turned his gaze on me. Was some sort of battle transpiring in the indicated area? No battle, I said, bouncing nervously. Perhaps we could see what lies in that direction anyway, suggested Mr. Suck. There might be someone in need of aid. There isn't. I rolled in a little circle. No doubt you detected the slaughter of an animal to provide fresh meat for the feast. But the high level of activity suggests otherwise, said Mr. Suck. Not to mention the screaming, added Dr. Meh. Excuse me. I stopped, bouncing. Are any of you from here? Suck clasped his hands behind his back and stared down his long nose at me. Obviously, we are not. And yet... Then, trust me. We local folk know better than you about a thing or two. I said it firmly to cut off any arguments. 
Now, who wants to go to the big celebratory feast? Crap raised his hand. That sounds like a marvelous idea. Just as soon as we've had a closer look at wherever that screaming was coming from. Perfect! I spun around and bounced, as many of the people in the entourage did the same. Feast it is! Right this way, my friends! With that, I, Vera, and the others led Crap and his companions away from the death pits and headed for the feasting place in the heart of the bleached, baking bone towers. Let me just say, you haven't lived until you've been to a feast on the world. We really pull out all the stops. Dried tumble pups, sand skeeto salad, rock hog marrow, head wing fritters, bone goat marrow, and to top it all off, the very best aged elixirs of mud blood and mite sweats. But I guess you'll never know what it's like. Too bad. Even if you were invited, you couldn't enjoy the experience any more, not with so many parts of you missing. But I hope you won't let the bad news get you down. After all, your sacrifice helps keep the gods happy, which keeps the world turning, the suns blazing, and the bones dry and crisp. Without you and those like you, our little paradise might all fall apart, and the people would have to give up their joy. I think that's worth screaming in pain and missing out on a few feasts, don't you? How would you like it, if you threw a party, and the guests of honor wouldn't eat anything? All because Dr. Meh claimed it was poisonous to their systems. Then, on top of that, one of the guests kept coming on to your mate. That's how the big feast for the excrement group went. Every time I turned around, Crap had Vera cornered and was saying things like, Do you believe in quantum entanglement? And, I have so many questions about your biology. The complete lack of physical compatibility between them didn't put him off at all. He kept leaning in closer and closer, brushing his fingers over her arm legs and making suggestive comments about her bones and central mass. I was so busy watching out for Vera, I didn't notice that the number of excrement guests got smaller as the feast went on, at least until it was too late. We reached that point long after the suns had gone down, just as the swear dance was starting up. I was explaining the symbolism behind the intricate, obscene gestures in the dance to Dr. Meh when suddenly the air filled with a piercing shriek, a piercing excrement person's shriek. It was enough to finally tear Crap's attention away from Vera. When the shriek erupted, he stopped flirting with her and leaped into action, looking around for the other members of his party. "'Where's Mr. Suck?' Crap's voice was all business and security officer Dork. "'No idea, Captain,' said Meh. "'I didn't see Suck that long ago, though.' Crap grabbed a smaller silver device that was clipped to his belt and flipped open the cover. The device warbled, and Crap spoke into it. "'Mr. Suck, Officer Dork, please respond.' Crap waited a moment, but there was only silence from the device and then another scream from afar. Crap whirled and stormed over to confront me. All right, Foka, take me to my people now. 
They should all be right here, I told him, at the feast being held in their honor, not roaming around our private sacred places unaccompanied. Another scream cut through the blistering hot night. That's one of my people, said Crap. Does it sound like he's at the party right now? Perhaps he's just having a really good time, I suggested. The next scream was louder and more agonized than the rest. Crap leaned closer and narrowed his eyes. Take me to them now, Foka. I'm out of patience. I hesitated. The truth is, I knew the screams were coming from the death pits, and I also knew nothing should be happening there since Vera had put a stop to it earlier. So I had a bad feeling about the whole thing and didn't want Crap anywhere near those pits. Unfortunately, someone else got that ball rolling. I've got a fix on their life signs. Meh was staring at the glowing screen of the boxy black device in his hands. That away. Meh jabbed a finger toward the death pits. Let's go. Crap ran from the feasting plaza with Meh in his wake. I just wanted the whole mess to go away, but fell in behind them with Vera just the same. As we charged among the bone towers, and the shrieking grew louder, I racked my brain, but could think of no good plan to resolve the situation in the people's favor. Would you say the death pits are a dump? Or is it more of a cultural thing? Everything's relative, right? What looks like a dump to you and your people looks like a showplace to me and mine. When I see these vast pits bubbling with red and green sludge, each rimmed with spike-bone altars, under chandeliers of mummified central masses and tendons, my heart-like organs skip three beats apiece. As I gaze around at the spinal domes and the pale, waxen walls carved into relief sculptures of clerics slashing sacrifices and dumping their corpses into the pits, I feel uplifted. But you don't get it, do you? It's all a horror show to people like you, an abomination against everything you believe. You primitives just refuse to see the bright side of agony, death, and decomposition in the name of remorseless gods who demand unending sacrifice to satisfy their monstrous hungers. To make matters worse, you don't understand how to show proper respect when walking in on the sacred sacrifice of your lucky, screaming friends. I witnessed this bad behavior firsthand on that fateful day when Crap and Meh barged into the temple of the death pits. There are many great reasons for calling Captain Crap an idiot. One of those is his habit of shooting first and asking questions later, or never. For example, as soon as he ran into the temple of the death pits, Following the signal from Mez's device, Crap drew the handheld weapon from his belt and started shooting. Bright yellow beams flashed from the tip of the gun, lancing across the temple toward a cleric on the far side of an enormous, bubbling pit. The beams missed, and the cleric went on with what he was doing, which was methodically slicing somebody up on a spiny altar slab. "'Get your hands off him!' Crap let loose another series of beams while running full tilt around the rim of the pit. Stop what you're doing! But the cleric continued to ignore him. He pulled a dripping green heart from the sacrifice's chest and raised it overhead, chanting a prayer with his eyes pinched shut. I said stop! 
Crap sounded almost hysterical as he continued to run and fire, run and fire. Though I didn't run, I did call out from across the rim. Cleric Udwa, please halt the ritual. Udwa's answer was to toss the green heart over the altar into the death pit, where it dissolved with a wisp of pale steam. Then, just as Crap was closing in, he pulled a lever on the altar, tipping the slab on its side and sending the heartless body splashing into the muck. Even as Crap tackled him to the ground and pummeled him with blows from his fists, I said a secret prayer to the gods, begging them to bring good things to the people of the world. Why waste a good sacrifice, even if it was unscheduled? Dear God! Was Meh praying too? You people just murdered Mr. Suck! Murder is a strong word, I said. I hated his guts, but he didn't deserve that, said Meh. But don't worry, I told him. He's not gone. What's wrong with you? Meg glared at me. Did you not just watch him dissolve in that corrosive pit? I'm telling you, he's still with us, I said. Meh waved me off. You know what you can do with that spiritual mumbo-jumbo, don't you, son? Meanwhile, across the pit where Suck had been dumped, Crap was shaking Cleric Udwa so hard the black blots in his bone-white skin were scattering. You maniac! That man was my best friend! What about Officer Dork? Meh shot another glare in my direction. What have you done with him? How should I know? I've been at the feast all evening. Where is he? Crap gave Udwa the roughest shake yet. Where is my security officer? He is closer than you might think. As always, Udwa's voice was serene. He has not left us. I have a question for you, Captain Crap, snapped Vera. What were your people doing here to begin with? This place is off-limits to outsiders. Suddenly, a deep, familiar voice resounded through the temple. Perhaps I can provide the answers to your questions. Everyone turned at once to look toward that voice. A solitary figure in a blue shirt and black pants emerged from an arched doorway across the temple. Mr. Suck! Captain Crap leaped to his feet, letting Udwa fall to the ground. You're alive! shouted Meh. Told you so, I said. Indeed, Suck nodded. I commend you all for your keen powers of observation. Meh rolled his eyes. That's him, all right. But how? Crap sounded suspicious. How did you come back to life? Quite simply, I did not, said Suck. But you're standing right there, said Meh. The point is, I was never dead, said Suck. But we saw your heart torn out and your body dumped in there. Crap pointed at the death pit. That body was cloned, said Suck, as was Officer Dork's. Apparently his clone was disposed of before you arrived. Cloned? Crap shot a look my way. You people sacrifice clones? We don't speak of this with outsiders, Vera said before I could answer. The secret manifold rituals are reserved for the people alone. 
Then why the hell did you clone and sacrifice our people? barked Meh. We can't tell you that, I said, because we don't know what happened. That was only partly true. Actually, I thought I could make a pretty good guess about it. We were investigating the screams and violent activity I'd detected earlier, explained Suck. When we entered this place, however, we were quickly apprehended and subdued. Another voice spoke up then, from another doorway not far from Suck's. We fought back, but they overpowered us. The man in the red top stepped out, looking most definitely not dead. Officer Dork! Crap sounded thrilled. You're alive, too. Glad to be here, sir. Dork smiled. Though I could have done without the roughhousing from that guy and his buddies. He pointed at Cleric Udwa, who was still sprawled on the ground. They tied us both up and threw us into some kind of electrified booths. The next thing we knew, we had identical twins. Clones, corrected Suck, which were promptly led away by the cleric. Officer Dork and I struggled to break free and pursue them, but breaking out of the booths took longer than we expected. The booth walls were stronger than they looked. Dork raised a clenched fist. But I got a burst of adrenaline once I heard my own voice screaming in pain. The voice of my clone, I mean. They grew adult clones that fast, said Meh. These people are remarkably adept at the cloning process, said Suck. I am at a loss to explain how they were able to generate full-grown clones of us in such a short time. Which they then proceeded to carve up and dump in a pit of corrosive sludge? Meh sounded disgusted. Why bother? Suck looked my way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I surmise cloning is the primary means of reproduction in this society. Meh turned and ran his device over me, tweaking controls and watching the glowing screen. Wrong, Suck. Near as I can tell, this fella has a perfectly functioning reproductive system, with all the right parts for a male of his species. No need for clones for the purpose of procreation. Perhaps the people of this planet prefer a higher degree of control over expressed characteristics, said Suck. Perhaps they prefer a specific assortment of forms that have proved to be most durable and beneficial in the past. Is that so? Miss scowled at me. Then what about all the screaming we've heard since we arrived on this planet? I assume that's been coming from sacrificial clones? It has, I told him. So why sacrifice these clones if they're so damn beneficial? asked Meh. Why not? Crap walked back over to stare down at Udwa. If they can make an unlimited number of copies, they can afford to use a few to keep the gods happy. Am I right? Cleric Udwa shivered and said nothing. When life is cheap, it's easy to throw it away. Crap spun on his heel and glared over the pit at me and Vera. But mercy is the truest mark of an advanced civilization. The greatest cloning technology in the galaxy isn't worth a damn if you're incapable of showing mercy, especially to guests who go astray. Why did you people sacrifice clones of our people? asked Matt. You'll have to ask the clerics that one, 
I told him, though I can say that they can be overzealous at times. Well, I hope those particular sacrifices were enough to hold your gods over, said Crap, because the bloodbath is going to stop. Correct, I said. The death pits are closed for the night, and no sacrifices will be conducted until tomorrow at— That's not what I meant. Crap strolled over and stood face to mass with me, eyes narrowed and jaw set. What I'm saying is, all further sacrifice of sentient beings on this planet— cloned or otherwise, will hereby cease, effective immediately. The idiot never got it. Even as he stood with his companions before the people the next morning, under the blistering white-hot suns, and gave a dramatic speech, in the halting, affected cadence I'd come to expect, and despise, from him, about the virtues of not killing clones, I could tell he didn't understand. For what better measure of a man can there be than how he treats his fellow beings? Crap cast his steely, self-righteous gaze over the crowd, pausing as if he expected applause. It didn't come, and he continued. And how can we, and you, in good conscience, reach out to other species in friendship, if we cannot respect and preserve our own. As I watched from the front of the audience, I had the distinct feeling he wasn't really giving the speech for our benefit. It seemed to me the performance was more about him and his people than us, as if he were stroking his own colossal ego or trying to justify what they were about to do to us, or both. Whatever the reason for it, his words meant nothing to me or any of us. We just listened politely, because the only way to get this all over with was to let the big blowhard have his say. We, and those like us, are committed to the advancement of all life-forms throughout the universe. Crap nodded proudly. We are pledged not to intervene in the natural course of development of other species, but wanton slaughter in the performance of sacrificial rites is surely not natural. It cannot be considered civilized behavior or the actions of a species worthy of joining the interstellar community. Therefore, I am doing you a very great favor. You mean you're finally going to shut up? whispered Vera, just for me. I couldn't help laughing to myself. Crap spread his arms wide, as if to take in all of us. I am going to free you from your old barbaric ways. I am going to free you from the curses of cloning and blood sacrifice in the name of a brighter and more enlightened tomorrow. Again, he seemed to be waiting for applause that never came. Dr. Meh and Mr. Suck, assure me your species will be able to continue to procreate via natural, biological means. You don't need cloning to survive— but ending the practice will restore the balance of genetic diversity among you, and ending the self-destructive brutality of blood sacrifice will restore the balance of compassion in your souls. With that, he plucked the silver communication device from his belt, flipped it open, and raised it to his lips. And now I give you back your freedom, your dignity, and yes, I will even say your humanity. For though our peoples come from worlds apart, 
We are not so different as you might imagine. He gave a signal over the device then, and the bombardment began. Colossal twin beams of golden energy blazed down from the sky, screaming from the guns of the orbiting fartship excrement into the district of the death pits behind Crap. Your brave new world starts here and now, Crap shouted over the noise of the energy beams. When these pits are demolished, our ship will move on to destroy all such sites around this planet. The ground rumbled and shook. Dust and smoke filled the air as the bone and rock walls of the temple collapsed, burying the cloning pods in the vast vats of corrosive sludge. Just like that, our way of life disappeared. Centuries of faith and tradition were buried in minutes, all because of one idiot who was convinced he knew what was best for the people he'd only met a few days ago, an idiot who had the power to change the world on a stupid whim. And he never did get it. Not that we bothered trying to make him understand after that. He and his people stayed on the world much too long for our liking, trying to guide us in changing our ways after the loss of the death pits. We just wanted the lot of them gone. So we told them what we thought they wanted to hear, how we'd all seen the light and were grateful and ready to make our world a better and more civilized place. When it seemed like they might never leave, we even put up statues of the idiot in every community around the world, supposedly paying tribute to his greatness. We didn't even piss on them at first. Eventually, they finally said goodbye. They thanked us for our hospitality, congratulated us on the progress we'd made, and the air sparkled around them. They were gone, and still I knew they didn't get it. They didn't understand that the death pits weren't that easy to get rid of. With enough determination, we could dig them up and rebuild the temples around them. They also didn't understand that the cloning had nothing to do with reproduction. That had just been Mr. Suck's theory, with no basis of any kind in our reality. For the people, cloning is all about sacrifice and punishment, making the lives of those who offend us miserable bringing the people we hate back to life again and again and making them suffer. In other words, hurting people like you. Can you still hear me? Hello? Oh, good. Your one remaining eye just opened. I'm so glad somebody's still paying attention in there, because I'm not quite done yet, my friend. You finally get it, don't you? There's a reason I've been carving you up like this on the bone altar of the newly restored Temple of the Death Pits, sacrificing you to the gods of the world in the name of the people who love and fear them. It's because you look just like him, Captain Crap, the idiot who came on to our mates, Vera and so many others in the time before he left, who lectured us as if we were children, tore down our most beloved institution, and jeopardized our favored status with the gods by denying them sacrifices for so very many weeks. It's because there's nothing more satisfying than cutting up his identical clone and dumping the body in the pit to dissolve into steaming goo, and then doing it again and again and again. You see those others lined up over there? 
the ones who look just like you and just like him. They're next. They're waiting for me to finish with you, waiting to be led by the clerics to the altar for their turn under the knife. And there will be plenty more where they came from. An infinite number of idiots, born in the clone pods, dying in the name of the very gods who were once scorned by your predecessor, the template for your line. And if we ever get bored with you, we can churn out clones of the rest of the crap's motley landing party. We'll never run out of craps and sucks and mez and dorks to kill. We collected plenty of genetic material from them, before they finally left to spread their nonsense elsewhere in the unsuspecting galaxy. Oh, hush now. Enough with the ear-splitting shrieks. I mean, you've got to appreciate a little poetic justice, don't you? And you've got to admit, there's a lot of black humor in the situation. Settle down now. I'm finally done. I think it's safe to say you finally understand. It's time for your bath in the pit. But I wouldn't worry. I've heard it doesn't hurt all that much as it melts your flesh and bones into bubbling sludge. Or, if it does, it won't last long. Though everything's relative, as your ancestor learned during his time on the world, one man's murder is another man's sacrament. Perhaps, from your point of view, it will seem to last an eternity. There you go. How about that? Oh, man. That, that just like escapism. Pure, pure escapism in, in like in a fantasy world there. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you indeed. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Robert, thank you so much. And Rish, you just kind of turned that story lovely. Thank you. So, like I say, that just got us there. Like I say, it is the end of the month, and it is our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and jubilant reticulations, my Yakarnic listeners, and welcome to this February 2020 Science News Update. I'm your host for this inelegant rant fest, Jim Campanella. Yes, we do indeed have another Idiot Scientist of the Month, but frankly, I'm beginning to wonder whether we are not just picking on China a bit too much. Especially given coronaviruses, the supervillain Dr. He, and the Hong Kong riots. They have a lot to deal with these last few months, or last couple of years for that matter. Alas, once again, the winner of Idiot Scientist of the Month is another Chinese researcher, unfortunately. Although China Agriculture University's Dr. Lin Ning denies embezzling millions of yuan in research funds, a Chinese court ruled January 3rd that he's guilty. The journal Nature reports that the court sentence was 12 years in prison and a fine of 3 million yuan. Dr. Zhang Lei aided in the criminal activity, the court found, and Zhang, who admitted to the charges, was sentenced to more than five years in prison, and was fined 200,000 yuan. Wow. Are we beginning to see a pattern here between last month's sentencing of uh, Zhang Kuhi and Li Ning? If anything, I would say the pattern is, is that Chinese courts are not big believers in leniency. So what exactly did Li do to deserve this? Well, between July 2008 and February 2012, Lee, who is actually a very well-known researcher, 
for animal cloning and genetic modification took about $5 billion in Chinese government grant money and, well, he quote-unquote invested it in companies that he and Zhang set up to, well, receive the funds. Lee testified that he intended to use that money to support his lab's research through a gap, a funding gap, that resulted from the government's requirement to return unused grant money at the end of the year before applying for new grants in January. Dr. Zhang. Yes, Dr. Lee. You don't think that the very dangerous and serious Chinese government will mind if we just hold on to this money until we get another grant next year? Of course not, Dr. Lee. The Chinese government is known for their patience and benevolence. All right then, Dr. Zhang, we'll just hide this money away in this shell company we'll call Lee Technology, Inc. Great idea, Dr. Lee. Lee's lawyer says that Lee may appeal. Several other researchers in the country also claimed that the requirement to return unused funds at the end of the year posed a cash flow problem as they reapplied for new grants the following year. And some took similar tax as Lee and Zhang by, quote, trying to squirrel away some of the money, unquote, according to the South China Morning Post. Indeed, Li and Zhang were not the only Chinese researchers arrested in 2014 for misusing research funds. This requirement of returning unused money has since been relaxed by the Chinese government nature reports, which I find both sad and hilarious. An anonymous Chinese scientist told Nature that Li's sentence was too severe for a researcher who has made major scientific contributions that have contributed tens of billions of yuan to the economy of China. Additionally, the scientist lamented that, quote, 12 years is effectively a death penalty for Dr. Li's academic life, unquote. Well, let's even this out by talking about an idiot American scientist. Fair enough? Unfortunately, it was an American scientist working for China. We just can't win here, can we? The New York Times reported that Dr. Charles Lieber, chair of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Harvard, was arrested and charged on January 28th, last month, and charged with a count of making false statements to federal authorities. The Justice Department reports that, quote, unbeknownst to Harvard University, Starting in 2011, Lieber became a strategic scientist at Wuhan University in China and was a paid contractual participant in China's Thousand Talents Plan in or about 2012 to 2017. At the same time, he also received funding from U.S. government agencies, including NIH and the Department of Defense which both require researchers to disclose if they receive aid from foreign governments or foreign entities. So what did he really do? Well, basically, he was moonlining for China without telling the U.S. government, and kind of double-dipping. So what did he actually get from China? Well, he received $50,000 U.S. per month. That's $600,000 a year, plus... 168000 in living expenses, and if that wasn't enough, the Chinese government gave him $1.5 million to establish a research lab at Wuhan University. Not bad, huh? Anybody in China need a plant geneticist? 
I'll work for only 25k a month. At any rate, neither Harvard nor federal granting agencies were aware of the connection or payments until the NIH started to inquire about Lieber's ties to China. The Times reports that in addition to Lieber's arrest, the Justice Department also released the names of two other researchers, both Chinese nationals, who had been charged on Tuesday in connection with aiding China. Yang Qingyi was charged with one count each of visa fraud, making false statements, and acting as an agent of a foreign government and conspiracy. Zhao Song Zhen was arrested and charged with stealing 21 vials of cells from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and attempting to smuggle them out of the U.S., which I reported on last month. Dr. Ross McKinney Jr. of the Association of the American Medical Colleges told the Times, quote, we worry that slowly but surely we're going to have something of a McCarthyish purity test here. Lieber's being criminally charged. This is a big deal. He could end up in jail. Unquote. Okay, you know, I have to respond to something as stupid as that. There is no McCarthyism in this case. There are no witch hunts. There is no bias against the Chinese government and the danger it represents. If the alleged charges are true, then it is simply an example of a greedy idiot who thinks his work is so important that he is untouchable. Lieber would be in just as much trouble if he had entered into a deal like this with Canada or Australia. He accepted huge amounts of money, fine, no issue with that, and then he made the stupid decision not to tell the U.S. granting agencies so he could get more huge amounts of money from them. That, dear friends, is fraud. I'm sorry, Dr. McKinney, but there is no purity test here. It is simple honesty that is being tested. Jeez Louise, this is getting depressing. Let's talk about science. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, has discovered its first Earth-sized planet in its star's habitable zone. The habitable zone, if you remember, or sometimes called the Goldilocks zone, is the planetary distance from a star where conditions may be just right to allow the presence of liquid water on the surface and potentially life. Dr. Paul Hertz's NASA group reported at the 235th meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Honolulu last month about the existence of the planet called Toy 700D and he confirmed its existence using NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. And his group has modeled the planet's potential environments to help inform future observations. Toy 700D is one of only a few Earth-sized planets discovered in a star's habitable zone so far. Others include several planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system and other worlds discovered by NASA's Kepler Space Telescope. Hearst says, quote, TESS was designed and launched specifically to find Earth-sized planets orbiting nearby stars. Planets around nearby stars are easiest to follow up with larger telescopes in space and on Earth. Discovering Toy 700D is a key science finding for TESS. Confirming the planet's size and habitable zone status with Spitzer is another win for Spitzer as it approaches the end of science operations in January. Unquote. TESS monitors large swaths of the sky called sectors, and it does this for 27 days at a time. 
That prolonged exposure allows the satellite to track changes in stellar brightness caused by orbiting planets crossing in front of their stars. Toy 700 is a small, cool, M-type dwarf star located just over 100 light years away in the southern constellation Dorado. It's roughly 40% of our sun's mass and size and about half its surface temperature. The star appears in 11 of the 13 sectors that Tess observed during the mission's first year, and scientists caught multiple transits by its three planets. The star was first misclassified in the database as being more similar to our sun, which meant the planets appeared larger and hotter than they are. Several researchers, including a high school student by the name of Alton Spencer, identified this error. Hertz says, quote, When we correlated the star's parameter, the sizes of its planets dropped, and we realized that the outermost one was about the size of Earth and in a habitable zone. Additionally, in 11 months of data, we saw no flares from that star, which improves the chances that Toy 700D is habitable and makes it easier to model its atmospheric and surface conditions, unquote. So if you look at the entire star system, it goes like this. The innermost planet, Toy 700b, is almost exactly Earth-sized and probably rocky, and completes its orbit about every 10 days. The middle planet, Toy 700c, is 2.6 times bigger than Earth, uh, between the sizes of Earth and Neptune, and it orbits about every 16 days, and it's probably a gas giant. Toy 700D, the outermost planet in the system, and the only one in the habitable zone, measures about 20% bigger than Earth, and it orbits every 37 days, and receives from a star only about 86% of the energy that the Sun provides to Earth. All the planets in the system are thought to be tidally locked to their star. That means that they rotate once per orbit so that one side is always bathed in daylight. Future studies will be able to identify whether the planets have atmospheres, and if so, maybe determine their compositions. Well, while we're on space, let's stick to the mysteriousness of outer space and talk about a space uh, oddity. Since 2007, researchers have cataloged over 100 fast radio bursts or FRBs, coming from every direction in the sky. But it's unknown what causes these radio bursts. Only 10 have been seen to repeat, and none of those have exhibited any kind of steady tempo. Until now. Dun, dun, dun. Dr. Dong Zi Li of the University of Toronto reported January 28th at archive.org that one of the known repeaters has a relatively brief window of activity every 16 days. That means something about the source or its environment is reliably controlling the burst activity, which might be a potential clue to the actual nature of these mysterious objects. Lee determined that the FRB blasts out about one to two radio bursts per hour for four days, and then it goes silent for just over 12 days before it repeats the cycle. She says, quote, this is very significant. It's potentially going to take us in an interesting direction to get to the bottom of these repeaters, unquote. The researchers suggest a couple of possibilities to explain the phenomenon, neither of which is sadly aliens, but hey, what are you going to do? One possible explanation for the periodicity is that the FRB is orbiting something else, perhaps a star or a black hole, 
In that case, the 16-day period might reveal how often the source of the radio waves is pointed toward Earth. Another explanation? Stellar winds from a companion might periodically boost or block the radio pulses. The winds might also explain why not every 16-day cycle produces bursts. If the companion occasionally belches out more material than usual, it could mask the signal. Either explanation implies that these repeating signals, or at least this one, might come paired with something else. Lee and her colleagues aren't ready to rule out standalone objects where the 16-day period might arise from the FRB rotating or wobbling, but that scenario is a bit tougher to reconcile with the data. For example, one popular FRB culprit is a type of highly magnetic neutron star known as a magnetar. Unfortunately, known magnetars in our galaxy spin around once every 12 seconds or less, which isn't exactly that uh, couple of weeks that's needed for this particular FRB we're talking about here. Lee finishes with, quote, we hope that this find is just the first of many periodic FRBs to be detected. There's nothing particularly special about this repeater. The fact that we detected periodicity on this one hints that other ones will have periodicity as well. Unquote. Next story. Old mushrooms. Okay. So this story is probably interesting to me because I study the early evolution of land plants. The most ancient plants popped up about 450 to 500 million years ago. It never occurred to me that fungi, fungus, might have been around at the same time. I thought mushrooms evolved much later than land plants, which tells you what I know about mushrooms. I was wrong. I wasn't just wrong. I was seriously wrong. The origin and evolution of mushrooms are very mysterious. Only 2% of species in this kingdom have been identified, and their delicate nature means that fossils are very rare and very hard to tell apart from other microorganisms. And until now, the oldest confirmed mushroom fossil was 460 million years old. A group of researchers led by Dr. Steve Bonneville of the Université Libre de Bruxelles has discovered a new mushroom fossil the oldest to ever be identified from its molecular composition. The study was published in January in the journal Science Advances. The fossilized remains of mycelium, a network of interconnected microscopic strands, were discovered in rocks whose age is between 715 to 810 million years old. A time in Earth's history when life on the continent's surface was pretty much in its infancy, and there weren't a lot of organisms there at all. These ancient rocks, found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formed in a lagoon or a coastal lake environment. Bonneville says, quote, The presence of fungi in this transitional area between water and land leads us to believe that these microscopic mushrooms were important partners of the first plants that colonized the Earth's surface around 500 million years ago, unquote. Bonneville's group used multiple molecular analysis techniques at a microscopic level to ensure an accurate analysis. They used synchrotron radiation spectroscopy, Raman confocal microscopy, fluorescence microscopy, and electron microscopy. 
Using all those techniques, it was possible to study the chemistry of organic remains without actually using a degradatory chemical treatment. This enabled the researchers to detect traces of chitin, a very tough compound found in the cell walls of fungi. They also demonstrated that the organisms were eukaryotes, that is, that they had a nucleus. Bonneville concludes with, quote, This is a major discovery, and one that prompts us to reconsider our timeline of the evolution of organisms on Earth. The next step will be to look further back in time, in even more ancient rocks, for evidence of these microorganisms that are truly at the origins of the animal kingdom, unquote. Final story of the evening. How often are mutants popping up out there? Apparently not quite so often if you live in central Pennsylvania. The rate of new mutations in the human genome appears to be consistent across diverse populations, except one, the Old Order Amish of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This group has a lower rate of developing new mutations, according to a study published January 21st in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The research was performed by Dr. Timothy O'Connor of the University of Maryland and his research group. The lower mutation rate does not appear to have a genetic component, pointing to a possible role of environmental factors in modifying how fast human genomes accrue new mutations. The Amish are fascinating because they have genetically cut themselves off from the world. In fact, I am constantly bringing up their genetics when I teach my medical genetics class. I knew that they had a pretty stable level of mutation, but I never suspected that it was lower than any other population. O'Connor says, quote, Mutation rates are a source of genetic variation within our populations. Knowing more about these rates in humans can help researchers better understand disease and evolution. Before this study, mutation rates had really only been looked at in Europeans, and so we wanted to be able to look at a much broader, diverse population, unquote. To perform this study, O'Connor and his colleagues employed a data set of whole genomes from more than 1,400 parent-child trios from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Top Med program. The team found that the rate of de novo mutations was similar across populations of African, Latino, and European ancestry who live in the U.S. De novo mutations just mean spontaneous mutations. In other words, they come out of nowhere. Uh, sometimes the term that's used is background mutation level. That finding was intriguing because previous work had suggested that populations with high levels of genetic diversity, like those of African descent, would have higher mutation rates. Even more unexpected was the mutation rate detected in the 59 Amish families in the cohort. These Amish families are of European descent, but have been genetically isolated, as I said, from other populations since the 1700s. They're all descended from 700 individual founders. They had a 7% lower mutation rate when compared to other populations. O'Connor says, quote, We were pretty surprised. Initially, we thought the lower mutation rate was an artifact of sequencing or analysis, some sort of mistake. We did basically everything we could try and figure out what kind of artifact would be causing it, and we couldn't find one, unquote. The research team next tried to pinpoint what caused the Amish to have a lower incidence of new mutations. 
O'Connor determined that the lower mutation rates were not heritable, which led the team to speculate that environmental factors, like the typical Amish diet and the limits on technology, could be contributing. Now, what is so cool about these findings is the reduced mutation rate that hadn't been previously shown with so much sequencing data. Some researchers have proposed a quote-unquote clean living hypothesis to explain the low levels of mutation. No cell phones, no cars, no junk food, no extra sugar, no TVs, no computers, early to bed, early to rise, etc. If that is really the case, then the researchers need to continue this work, and they definitely need to see if it's validated in other populations that have similar, simple environments like the Amish do. That's all for me for now. Eat clean, bro. Maybe that'll keep your mutations down. Report all that extra Chinese cash if you want American cash, too. Keep listening to the skies for repeater signals. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go, James. Thank you very much. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Never a chore. (laughs) Yeah, every week, lad. Same jokes. (laughs) Right then, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Do look after yourselves. Do think about coming over and supporting us on Patreon. That thing keeps on going down and down and down. We've lost quite a few, and it would be lovely if you just kind of can come back and, and support us for the stories like that, man. Oh, and Jim as well. Thank you indeed. Look after yourselves. Take good care. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm a hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. 
I'm still building word by word And I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there